Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? Two weeks ago, John Gruden resigned as head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders after the New York Times published stories on his emails which featured homophobic and misogynistic language. Last Monday, Seton Hall University's College of the Communication and the Arts Sports Media Speaker Series hosted its latest panel discussion entitled The Gruden Effect, Examining the Larger Issues. Earlier this year, we featured podcasts on the school's Black History Month sports media panel series. Like those events, this one was co-hosted by Hall alum and former ESPN journalist Bob Lee, and the school's professional-in-residence, B.J. Schechter, who also serves as editor and publisher of Baseball America. The panel included Bomani Jones, who will launch a weekly late-night series, Game Theory, next year on HBO, where he also serves as a contributor on Back on the Record with Bob Costas. George Atala, assistant executive director of external affairs for the NFL Players Association, Judy Batista, reporter for NFL Media who previously covered the league for the New York Times, and Charles Grantham, director of the Center for Sport Management at Seton Hall's Stillman School of Business and former executive director of the NBA Players Association. Grantham shared how the language used by Gruden in his emails has been part of sports for decades, and he recounts how Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban scuttled NBA commissioner Adam Silver's initial attempt to oust Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling. He noted that the leagues need to change their governing documents to rid their ranks of this behavior. Ultimately, again, it goes back to where are where we are and where we have been for a long time with regard to diversity. We are where we are. The question is, as an institution, will these those who own teams decide that uh, a Donald Sterling action? If you go, if I gotta take you back just for a moment, Adam Silver's first response was to vote him out of the league, and then it was uh, Mark Cuban who stood up and basically said, "Look, we can't do that based on an illegal wiretap." looking out for all those other owners who are thinking about or thinking the same kinds of things. So what turned into, instead of voting and creating a procedure that deals with this behavior, are we talking about behavior? Are we talking about attitudes? We're talking about behavior here. And is there a consequence for these, this behavior? When we had a one, two, three strike, you're out for players for drugs. That was a procedure. Bad behavior, procedure. When will the, quote, institution of the NFL, the NBA, et cetera, sit down and say, hey, look, there's some consequences for some of our behavior. What are those consequences? We have not seen that happen in uh, certainly the three or four decades, but we haven't seen it happen since, uh, uh, what? I can't think of a time that (laughs) the organization, the constitution needs to be amended the NFL Constitution, Major League Baseball Constitution, just like a collective bargaining agreement is amended. There are procedures. The governance of these leagues has stepped back and have little or no advancement over all this time. 
Batista expressed her desire to see all the emails reviewed by the NFL's investigation of the Washington football team, whose former president, Bruce Allen, was the recipient of Gruden emails. Lee then discussed the WFT investigation with Jones, who circled back to Grantham's NBA example and how leagues are run by the owners. Batista wrapped up the discussion with reporting about the WFT probe. Obviously, every reporter wants to see all 650,000 emails. Um, And we have since the Washington football team investigation wrapped up over the summer, right? I mean, that's what this all stems from, which, as you pointed out, I mean, it is maddening that John Gruden deserves everything he is getting. and, And so does Bruce Allen, for that matter, who has also been been part of this. It, it is maddening, though, that we, we don't know at the center of it um, what happened in Washington and what that workplace environment was like beyond, you know, the sort of generalities that we were told when the investigation was wrapped up, that it was a very toxic workplace and I think highly unprofessional is how they described it. So, yes, would I like to see all the emails? Yes, of course. I've got to be honest. I'm a realist. I don't have a whole lot of confidence we're going to see those emails. Um, the reality of the situation is that um, when when they wrapped up that investigation, they announced the $10 million fine and the sort of non-suspension suspension of Daniel Snyder that they're not calling a suspension, but he's sort of banished from the team, kind of. Um, you know, and I, I, I think we'd all be naive if we didn't think that that you know, it was not a negotiated settlement that they arrived at at that, that they would, this would be the penalty and we would not release these things. And I, as a reporter, I have to assume that there is some ironclad agreement somewhere um, that means that we're never going to see those emails. Um, and that was part of the deal. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not getting my hopes up about seeing the emails, but I mean, obviously I wonder what else is is in there? Since it's it's hard to imagine that out of six hundred fifty thousand, the only bad ones are the ones that we've already seen. Bomani, let me let me ask you about your take on the um, the gap, and it's a real gap between how stakeholders, the thirty two entities um, who who own the National Football League, treat each other and 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 have the suasion they have with the commissioner versus. The employees, uh, vis-a-vis that you know, the lack of a written report with this Snyder investigation, the ten million dollar fine, which by I did a little math, Forbes values the Washington Football Team at four point two billion dollars. So a ten million dollar fine would be the equivalent of a six hundred dollar tax levy on a quarter million dollar house. All right, so move on. I mean, it's it's a you know, it's barely a mosquito bite. What do you make of that? Some would say double standard. Others would say industrial reality. Well, power dynamics are interesting when we talk about all this going back to Donald Sterling, because we can't forget a big part of why Silver was able to get Donald Sterling out of there is there was fear of a player mutiny and that they were not going to play a playoff game, at which point, you know, nobody liked that guy anyway. And so they went ahead and they tossed him out of the paint Um, with the commissioner of the NFL. I believe the year we're looking at is 1981, 1982, when Al Davis takes the power away from Pete Rozelle by moving the Raiders from Oakland to Los Angeles. And then it just became clear, oh, we're the ones who are actually in charge here. You could even go to baseball with removing Faye Vincent as commissioner. I think that was in 1993 in his whole speech about it. I was, you know, people are saying that I am the last commissioner. That's what he titled his autobiography, because the idea that the commissioner ruled independently of the owners, if there was ever a truth to that, 
completely went out the window at that point. Roger Goodell is an employee in a way that at least as being the commissioner of the NFL had never been as stark as it is in that place. And so what you wind up with in that case is the owners don't have any interest in enforcing any standard upon themselves. They are perpetually concerned with what happens when it's my turn to be under the boot of this. And they're always thinking on that. Mark Cuban, who wound up having a toxic workplace uh, situation with the Mavericks, it's no surprise that he was the one that stood up and was like, hey, so you're just saying if somebody catches you on tape, you're going to take our teams from us? On principle, I don't like that, right? Like they're all looking at themselves in that. And so, yeah, they have billions of dollars. There's no way that you could enact what I think is a reasonable financial penalty as a league to actually hurt any of these owners. David Tepper's so rich, he bought the Panthers cash. Man, so rich, he once bought his old boss's $40-something million dollar house. And the old boss said, pass him over for a promotion. And he bought it just to have the damn thing demolished. Like, they are, they, there's a level of rich in ownership in sports that did not exist when we were talking about this, even as recently as 20 years ago. Like, yeah. these weren't all just zillionaires who happened to own these teams. And so I think that if you combine that with a gradual decimation of the press corps that covers this and thereby is less able to actually investigate and get to the bottom of some of this stuff— and what you got are really rich, pe- really rich people who can operate with a certain level of impunity because there really aren't any consequences to what goes on. And a public that, man, really seems to like football and doesn't demand. On one hand, I think you have people, the majority of the American public really looks at football as everything that's right about this country without demanding rightness from the institution itself. Like it's all really complex there, but the players are always going to be under the boot of this to a degree just because the money is so much different and the player's money itself is so tenuous. If I could just jump in here and say something. You hit on it, Romani. They don't want to set a precedent. When the investigation was still going on in Washington, you know, I would talk to people around the league and owners, and and there was no stomach for throwing Dan Snyder out of the league or trying to force him to sell. That just was not... That was not going to happen because they don't want to set a precedent. Um, you know, even the ones who think they don't have any skeletons in the closet have no idea what could be coming, and so they certainly don't want to create a situation where you know somebody is going to look back and say, "Well, five years ago we pushed Dan Snyder off the cliff. Why? Why shouldn't we do it to you?" Uh, you know, so I, I, the idea now that you know why can't the league force? Dan Snyder to get rid of the team, or why can't the league present those emails? That's the power dynamic is switched. That's not the dynamic. The league office is is not in charge here. The yeah. owners are in charge here. Jones and Batista discussed the reluctance of Raiders owner Mark Davis to fire Gruden after the NFL presented emails to the team and before the Times reported them. The first Times piece, published on Friday, October eighth featured Gruden emails that disparaged Demora Smith, executive director of the NFL Players Association. It wasn't until Monday, October 11th, when a second time story had Gruden's derogatory comments about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell that the coach resigned. After Lee raised former Raiders CEO Amy Trask's allegations of inappropriate comments by Allen, an emotional Atala explained why Gruden was allowed to coach after publication of the initial Times article. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark Davis does, did not want to fire him either, which has no. to make it easier that's, for John to get you know, that money. Sort of back, if we back up the timeline a little bit, uh, a week ago, before 
the second story ran in, in the New York Times before he resigned, um, the league was getting kind of antsy that nothing had happened at that point. I think when they gave the emails to the Raiders, you know, now about 10 days ago, however many days, two weeks ago, um, they thought there would be action kind of quickly. I, I, the fact that he coached last Sunday, you know, I think took a few people back. And, and the fact that then it got to, you know, early Monday afternoon a week ago and nothing had happened tells you everything you need to know that Mark Davis did not want to have to do this. He had to be nudged. And then, uh, you know, the, the second story in the New York Times was the final shove. But, you know, yes, I, I think he was very reluctant. And even just his remark, you know, go ask the NFL, they have all the answers, <laughs> suggests he was at least as unhappy with the league office as he was with John Gruden. Uh, then you've got what Amy Trask, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier in our, our event this, this evening, uh, said that uh, she had uh, heard Bruce Allen, by implication, make offensive comments and reported it to the owner, imputing that it's Mark Davis, and going back several years. So if Mark Davis had this brought to him and, and did nothing, or did he send it to the legal? I mean, that's a whole other branch of the story. It's a story that keeps on giving. It's a journalist dream. Yeah. Nightmare, actually. But, yeah. <laughs> Bob, Bob, I need to say one sentence about this because I've been trying to suppress some of the anger and all of a sudden the feelings have just come back. The reason it was okay for no action to be taken between the Friday email and the Sunday game was because Demora Smith was a black labor lawyer who wasn't one of them. Period. That just needed to be said as bluntly as possible. Right. We haven't even broached the topic is it's a parlor game of who leaked it, but, um, and how much leverage uh, the commissioner and the, and the central office may have by not releasing those emails and who knows what else is in there and what they'll use it for. Jones addressed the timeline of media and player responses from Friday the 8th until Monday the 11th and how swiftly Gruden resigned during Monday Night Football, the ESPN franchise that he fronted as game analyst for eight seasons, during which he sent these emails. At the end of the exchange, Lee noted how Al Davis championed diversity, and Jones shared his take on the former Raiders owner. As George said, he could have written that first one out. It was just the next ones that proved to be too much. But if they had just made it through, they could have made it through a couple of days. Like, you'd be amazed what you can get by with if you can just ride it out for a couple of days. I mean, Tariko and Tony Dungy had his back. Drew Brees ran away like nobody was trying to say anything. Charles Woodson and Tim Brown had already come to be the, hey, I know that guy. He would never say such a thing. They had everything in line. And then they were like, nah, <laughs> how you going how you going to explain all of this? And then it was just like, oh, oh OK. Yeah. I mean, he, think about again. He quit in two hours after keeping the job for three days. Well, you know, th that, that article last Monday in the New York Times, uh, it read like something from The Onion. It could not be this bad. As I said, bigotry bingo. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that to be funny. I mean, who didn't he offend? So, uh, and the ultimate irony is that Al Davis, and I spent some time with him, you know, in his latter years, um, he was a man known for, you know, integration for civil rights, for, for progressive uh, in the world of football, which is saying something in the world of football. He was too much of a sociopath to let a little thing like race or gender get in the way. Just win, baby. <laughs> Grand irony. Just win, baby. That's win. The Gruden effect, examining the larger issues, lasted a perspective-laden hour and 12 minutes. 
and I encourage you to watch it in its entirety on Seton Hall's YouTube channel, as I've only presented a portion of the conversation. I'll leave you with a seven-minute discussion, beginning with Atala unfortunately echoing Grantham's comments that players weren't surprised by Gruden's emails. Then, Schechter asked Jones and Batista about the media's power in affecting change, before Lee put a period on this portion of the panel discussion, previewing the NFL's fall league meeting to be held Tuesday, October 26th, and Wednesday, October 27th. I think there is an interesting um, level of, I'm not surprised. Like, almost this has been received with a shrug of, hey man, I just play football, I'm not surprised, right? With the exception of individual players who have taken this hard and, and and obviously you know somebody like Carl um, who who took a day to sort of process all that was going on um, that's not to say that it doesn't hurt them personally under the surface but I feel like the membership has met all of this with a I mean why, why is anybody surprised right like we you know again it's a little bit of a we told you so um, and there, you know, there's also a little bit of, um, you know, Demoris especially, and, and the player directors, you know, the group of, of folks who deal with the membership, who have been preaching about this for years. I mean, we've we've communicated to the membership all the power dynamics. We've communicated to them that there is no uh, oversight other than um, themselves. So there is a little bit of of, of that. I think spinning it forward again, we want to see transparency uh, because, as Judy said, ten years ago was not like 1963 here. Like we we have been um, dealing with this business that has exploded from a nine billion dollar business to a nearly 17 billion dollar business. COVID be darned, um, you know, full steam ahead, and uh, it's just everybody's a little too comfortable with some of the behavior that was expressed in those emails. Yeah, to, getting back to that, you know, at uh, that point, uh, expounding on that, George, and something that Bomani brought up earlier is, you know, we've seen this movie before, you know, lots of times, you know, we mentioned, you know, Mark Cuban, Donald Sterling, um, and, and I'll turn to you, Bomani, what if, what, what is it going to take for any real impactful change to happen? You know, I, we have outrage now, um, that's good, but the news cycle eventually is going to move on. Um, and what's to say in six months, a year, we're not going to have a very similar story. Silly me, but I do believe that we in media have some measure of power on these things and the ability to kind of sway public opinion and a measure of pressure that you wind up getting up top. So like, for example, I know me, myself, personally, when it comes to college stuff, I watch colleges take down stuff off of Twitter because I said something, right? Like, I've seen things actually change off of an outside-the-lines parting shot about Oklahoma State, and then suddenly there's a Mike Gundy apology or something that comes out. Like, this does happen. The larger NFL press corps, for whatever reason, is not really a questioning bunch. Like this goes differently from sport to sport. It's not a broad indictment of anybody. It's just kind of what the term, what the levels of engagement are there. 
baseball writers are typically very, very critical. They're a bit more like go after the institution. That's just always been the way that they're um, sort of built. Like hockey, they just love killing the commissioner. That's their favorite thing to do. The NBA writers are very defensive of the institution itself and all the people who don't like it. I mean, like, you know, we, we can go on and on with that. But there is no real ground level pressure on these owners whether on a national level or on a local level. And so, again, when this thing happened on Friday, we kind of played it macro level with kid gloves. When the thing happened with Gruden, for whatever's worth the second thing, the Monday night thing, he got out fast. Like, that report came out, and he was out of that job within two hours. We didn't even have a chance to go do anything. But there is, I think, a level of scrutiny that we can give collectively to NFL owners that we don't. And I just think that part of it is, as a society— we have such a reverence for rich people and just a general belief that if you have made these billions of dollars, there's a respect that you deserve. Never mind the significant portion of these guys that inherited these billions of dollars that they had. They ain't even have to go do nothing for it. And we still feel like, hey, well, your daddy got it. So I guess that means something about you. Right. We still lean with it. I do think there's something that can be said just from pushing harder back against those people. But there's, you know, these relationships are tenuous, and as newspapers are having a harder time, can you afford to do something that's going to perhaps restrict your access, which then all of a sudden gets you into a place where they fear the law subscriptions? If you are a rights holder, are you going to go out and actively engage and get into a battle with these people that you do business with? That's where it gets hard, but I still think that we have the power in our job to make some things happen, or I'd like to think that. Judy, I'd love your take on that. <clears throat> especially with the NFL media, given that you're in it. <laughs> I do think the media has a role. Um, and I think in the past, the media has played some role. Um, the Kaepernick thing, most probably most prominently, um, I, I mean, we would not have known as much about Kaepernick's protest if it were not for the media and the continuous coverage of it. Um, and I do think eventually that applied pressure George brought up the thing when they were going to have a rule. I was covering that meeting, that owner's meeting, when they were going to put the rule in saying like, well, if you want to protest, just stay in the locker room instead. And I mean, in, in real time, we were saying, how is this going to work, right? Like what, who's going to go along with this idea? Um, so I do think the media, I agree with Bamani, has, has a role to play. The Washington Post, for example, has played a huge role in the Washington football team issues coming to light. Um, I, if it were not for the Washington Post, we wouldn't know any of this. So um, I, we do have a role. Uh, there are there are certainly issues I, I agree with about, uh, especially on the beat writer level. Um, that is a tough spot to be in because it does affect your access and it does affect your ability to cover the team on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and and th that is a constant struggle. But, I, you know, I, I don't have any question that if you just keep asking questions, uh, you know, you at least force them into a position of having to answer them. There's a, you know, there's a league meeting coming up in a, however many, 10 days, I think it is, a week, 10 days. And that'll be our first opportunity in front of them to ask questions, you know, including of, of the commissioner. I assume we're going to get a chance to talk to the commissioner there. Oh, the leaks from that meeting. For more information on Seton Hall's College of Communication and the Arts Sports Media Speaker Series and to sign up for the November 11th event, 
Rising Talent, How Women Are Slowly But Importantly Playing Larger Roles in Sports Media, go to shu.edu slash communication dash arts slash sports dash media dash speaker dash series dot cfm. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. And find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V dot com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M, as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.